And have not any longer any hope of sweeping out old sorrows with the bright, sure love that could have helped you through the fight. I own that some of me is dead tonight. D.H. Lawrence. Memories. Daniel, David Giasi, is very close to Lena, Natalie Portman. He has just invited her to a barbecue and she's turned him down because she will be painting a bedroom, which plays like an excuse, even though that is what she will be doing later. He tells her, It is not not a trail. trail. Or or insult to his memory. memory. We don't know yet that Lena lost her husband. A moment ago, we might have thought the bedroom in question was once shared by Lena and Daniel. Which it was, I suppose, but we'll get to that later. Beat. Wide shot, and we can see Daniel has his hand on Lena's arm. Lena, I'm going going to paint the bedroom. The script says Daniel gives way removes his hand. Really, Lena just walks away. In the script, Daniel says home improvements. Lena smiles perfunctorily. Lena, yes. Second nine, angle on Daniel left behind. Helplessly Hoping by Crosby, Stills, and Nash begins. We talked a few episodes ago about the song's lyrics generally. The song was written by Stephen Stills and recorded at New York City's record plant December 1968, along with You Don't Have to Cry. This was Crosby, Stills, and Nash's first recording session as a group after taking a red eye out of Los Angeles. It was paired with Marrakesh Express to become the group's debut single. It peaked at number 28 on the Billboard Hot 100 August 1969. Stills tells Rolling Stone, 5th April 1969, that Helplessly Hoping is, quote, a real country song, as opposed to all those plastic Hollywood country songs by plastic country groups I read are happening then. End quote. David Crosby tells Rolling Stone, 18th August 2008, quote, I loved it as a song and I love what happened with it. We got very lucky, very fortunate with the harmonies on that one. They came out extremely well. We still play it every night. End quote. Ben Salisbury tells Rolling Stone, 14th March 2018, how he and Jeff Barrow came to the score for Annihilation with two pieces of music already in place, Helplessly Hoping and Motorot's The Mark. He explains, quote, They were poles apart, but it gave us some foundation. CSNN gave us this acoustic guitar thread, and Motorot gave the end of the film this electronic feel at the end. As soon as we heard both of them, we went, they're great, end quote. Two disparate pieces of music for a film that itself has two very different sides to it. We'll come back to this time and time again, but for now, consider Josephine Livingstone's description from The New Republic, 27th February, 2018. Quote, As in Stalker, Jurassic Park, and The Fly, things get dark. But as Lena makes it to the lighthouse, the Virginia Woolf novel by the same name comes into the story and leavens it with psychological sophistication. 
As the medical tent and the water vase explain, the shimmer's prismatic refractions are an allegory, at least in part, for the perceptive warping of human subjectivity. As in Wolf's novel, Lighthouse is the third section of Annihilation, introduced by title card. In To the Lighthouse, the building represents an always-out-of-reach object for human desire, that thing that propels us through life and toward each other. You are never in the lighthouse, only moving towards it. Like Annihilation, the novel is deeply concerned with human relationships and the fractal complexity of the way that we perceive each other. The lighthouse is surrounded by crystal trees that resemble the synapses of the brain. This lighthouse is desire, as with Wolf, and also the frontier that separates our own minds from others. Here we see an embodied meditation on subjectivity and trauma. End quote. For now. The script describes the establishing shot of the house. Exterior, suburb, day. Bright, flat sunlight pushes through treetops. A broad road, detached houses, green lawns. Two children on push bikes glide down the sidewalk. In the film, we cannot see the road. The yard instead feels a little too big. There's a wooden swing set with two swings in the yard and a porch swing-style swing closer to but not on the porch. There's a metal mailbox on a wood post, a picnic table off to the left side of the house, a shed to the right, its double doors partly ajar. No picket fence, but only because this exterior was probably shot in England. Because we do not know any better, we might imagine a family living here. Two parents, children, maybe a dog. We will return to this exterior unexpectedly in minute 66, and all of this play of memory versus reality, psychology versus the environment, will be upended. But for now, I find myself focusing on the windows upstairs when I pause the image. Three windows, and from left to right they have closed curtains, partly open curtains, and almost completely open curtains. In a film like this, with so many deliberately evocative images, even in passing, the aforementioned two trees, the two swings here, the two wires dangling in from the upper left corner of the frame to connect this house to the outside world. This feels deliberate. There are so many twos in this film, but here we have a three. In a process of a sort, a western audience reads from left to right, so perhaps we follow the windows from left to right, at least subconsciously, as we take in this exterior. There is no movement in the image, though the camera moves toward the house but we might read these windows along with the camera movement as an opening up of the house. The curtains are being pulled back for us to enter. The script continues. Interior house continuous. A quiet house. Stillness in the rooms. The first interior shot is noticeable because it does not focus on one room. Seconds 19 through 22, instead the central focus is a wall. To the left, the kitchen beyond a living room. The bright sunlight from outside diffuses in the kitchen into an unreal glow. To the right of the wall, a dining room beyond the staircase going up. The blue glass separating the quarantine space, the two trees outside the classroom window, the cancer cells bisecting themselves, and now this space divided. And our focus is deliberately divided. Then second 22, the lyrics begin, and the angle has only changed slightly. The staircase is central now. The dining room is still visible, but the camera is higher than it was before. And maybe we notice the four picture frames on the wall. One of the images seems to be a wedding photo. Second 25. The bed. Then, from the script. Photographs in the bedroom show a couple. Lena with a man in his early 30s. Kane. It is a wedding photo. Apparently the exact same photo hanging by the stairs, but we never got close to it there. Lena wears a wedding dress, holds a bouquet... 
smiles. Kane wears his dress uniform, smiles as well, and he holds Lena's hand close to his chest. Behind them, other men stand in two rows, swords raised. From the script, the next photo, Kane is a soldier. Images show him in uniform with comrades in a big landscape of rock and dust. If you like guns, Kane holds a Fabrique Nationale Scar Light in this photo with his fellow soldiers. He smiles easily at the camera, the script says, full of life in these frozen snapshots. And there is so much to unpack in this one line from the script. Full of life in these frozen snapshots. When we see Kane next minute, he will not be so lively. Here he is a memory. He is a photograph. And aside from the occasional photo of, say, your toddler child crying, which is sometimes oddly adorable inasmuch as it is heartbreaking, you do not frame photos of painful moments. You do not set them beside your bed or hang them on the wall by the stairs. You hang the happy moments. You hang the moments that, if your memory failed you, you would want reminded of. You freeze the moments that need to be frozen, not because they are part of a continuum that cannot also be unhappy, but because singular images evoke far more than singular memories. An image of a wedding, a video perhaps, and you might recall the music playing, the toast someone made, the friends and family who were there, the wedding night, the honeymoon. You might think back to the proposal if there was one, the first time you had sex, the first time you kissed, the first date, the first attraction, the first meeting. One image can draw you back into so many moments, so many memories, When life is dark, when life is bleaker, maybe it has just grown stale, old, tired, you have these moments to draw you back. Or when life is wonderful, you have these moments to perhaps invite conversation from others. When they notice the men with the swords, when they notice the uniforms, when they notice the smiles, the looks, the hands held tight. You can share a photo even without a detailed telling of the moment it captures, the memories it evokes. And it will invoke in others their own memories. So it isn't just that Cain is frozen in happiness in these photos and effectively dead in the present when we see him next minute. It is that any photo isolates and illuminates one piece of time. The now. I have said, and will say again surely, that Ballardian science fiction deals in subjectivity, deals in the external world, echoing the internal psyche. Lena is stuck because all she has are these frozen moments. Repainting, as she will be doing next minute, is a ploy to change the present, to wake it up, bring it to life. And I find myself twisting toward poetry because prose is not getting to the point here. But the thing is, you understand the point. You know how photos play on memory. You know how photos distort memory over time. The fleeting frozen feeling draws us into one singular moment in one timeline and is more real than all others. And over time, all other versions in our head might gather dust or decay. And we are left with something specific, however reflective of reality that reaches deep within and activates a piece of our soul. The script tells us. One of the images shows a wedding, Lena in white, the couple embracing. There is no embrace. Another shows the couple in Verona, perhaps the honeymoon. That photo's not there either. The third photo we see has both Lena and Kane in uniform. His more casual and plain, hers camo. They both smile. She looks forward, but not toward the camera. He looks at her. Meanwhile... We're a few lines into helplessly hoping. Helplessly hoping her harlequin, others nearby, awaiting a word, gasping at glimpses of gentle truth. In an earlier episode, 
and then the blog entry from last year that I used for that episode, I misquoted this fourth line as grasping at glimpses. But the difference is really negligible, isn't it? Grasping at or gasping at glimpses? Like that moments that take your breath away line that exists on placards and postcards and posters somehow bears more truth than the mind reaching at a memory that feels incomplete, feels like it's dying as life keeps on slipping, slipping into the future, leaving memory behind. Interior, house, living room, continuous. The furniture is vintage or retro, but not particularly modern. The side table and coffee table have metal hairpin legs. The couch and chairs have wooden feet. A blanket hangs over the back of one chair. Lena sits on the sofa. Grasping and gasping at glimpses of a life she valued, denied, lost, and then valued again, because what does she have but photographs reminding her that she was happy once with Cain? And it wasn't all infidelity and separation. She remembers the good times more clearly than the bad. Legs curled beneath her, her shoes are on the floor in front of her. She still wears the dress she had on before. It is the same day, presumably. She made it home. She sat down to grieve, because what else does she have in the present but that knot inside her, that hole inside her, however you want to characterize it, that tells her that life is not what it should be. The glare from a window makes it hard to identify the framed print on the wall to the left of the entryway. But on the wall to the right is a poster for Hoyt's A Day and a Night in New York, a musical farce that debuted in 1898. On the one hand, the simple binary in the title and the play of light and dark on the poster could be the only reason this poster is here. It is also, apparently, a popular vintage poster available to buy. An internet search brings up far more links to the poster than links to any information on the musical itself. According to the Internet Broadway database, the show had 54 performances at the Garrett Theater from 30th August to 22nd October 1898. It was a musical in three acts, a comedy, and a farce. It was produced by Charles H. Hoyt and Frank McKee, and you can find song titles, lyricists, the names of the cast, but not a plot synopsis. So I have it upon a review from the New York Times, 31st August 1898, and I still cannot tell exactly what the plot is. The musical seems to take place behind the scenes of the theater, and involves a small-town deacon who is not as prim as he seems. But I digress, because all that remains in this minute is sadness. And we don't even know the context yet. Not really. Hopelessly Hoping continues. Gasping at glimpses of gentle true spirit He runs, wishing he could fly And we find ourselves pulled into a different joy than a photograph. Second 46, The Bed from Above. Lena on the left, arms and legs bare, Kane on the right, shirtless, tickling Lena, and you would be hard-pressed to find any sadness here. If we pause, we catch our own glimpse of these two people. On her side table, a candle, a water glass, a wristwatch, a magnifying glass on a chain that one might wear as a necklace. On his side table, a speaker, a dollar and some change, a copy of 50 Plants That Changed the Course of History by Bill Laws. And we can see that Kane has a large tattoo on the left side of his chest up onto the collarbone. We cannot immediately identify it, but we will see it more clearly later and it will matter much later. It is a bear. It is a moment of happiness that we will revisit this very moment again in minute 21 and the context will perhaps not entirely be joyful. This is a scene of separation and departure. This joy is the edited version. It is temporary. The song continues. Only to trip at the sound of goodbye. 
by the end of this line we get a side angle as Kane stops tickling Lena and they kiss. Without the context of the larger scene, this memory is nothing but good. But this was, is, will be, the beginning of their last farewell. Second 52. We're close on Lena, on the couch, fighting off tears. The script says we can feel Lena's effort to modulate her breathing. And time runs out for this minute. The first cause is mine, always mine, and yours. The press of loneliness, the play of silence and time. A new world of my creation. And I want more. I want you. And you. And you. The pain isn't all and mine. And you don't want me. All mine. But the press of blame, the play of consequence and rhyme is the make of my creation. And I hunger. For you. For you. For the you. first cause is mine. For you. Moving on. Always mine. The twist of love and grief together a genetic tango, a figurative crime to a prison of my creation. The chance to devour you. Devour you. Devour you. Devour you. Devour you. Entirely. To consume you. And. The first cause is mine. Destroy you. Until. Always mine. Neither of us remains. A dangerous need. A bloodthirst for love. Nothing but love. The play of fantasy and time. But time has let me go. A lonely vandal of the human heart. Lost in a desert. Where you are not but an oasis. An illusion of my own creation. And I need to turn away. Robert E.G. Black. First Cops. Annihilation. 